Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and welcome to episode 75 of Highly Relevant, a U.S. Latino podcast examining how Hispanics are influencing and reshaping mainstream entertainment in the United States. This week, I speak with two women from Puerto Rico, the island with arguably the most talented people in the world, where we discuss the theater and the television business for women of color. My first guest is with Triple Threat star and Tony nominee, Ariana DeBose, who is currently one of the three stars of Summer, the Donna Summer musical on Broadway. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I did with my wife, and we had a blast. We discussed the intense vocal preparation in becoming the queen of disco, why the show casts women in male roles, equal pay, pansexuality, and Hispanic identity on Broadway. Then I chat with Zetna Fuentes, a Latina TV director who has directed some of the biggest shows currently on television. You've heard of them. Marvel's Jessica Jones, NBC's This Is Us, ABC's Scandal, and Amazon's Bosch, just to mention a few. We discuss why there are so few Latina directors in TV and film and what can be done to fix it, plus how she uses her Hispanic heritage to influence her TV work. So keep the volume up. This is the Highly Relevant Podcast. After working recently in Hamilton and the Bronx Tale on Broadway, Puerto Rican singer, dancer, actress, and Tony nominee Ariana DeBose has become a lead star in her own right with Summer, the Donna Summer musical. She reveals to me how she overcame singer's anxiety, why she doesn't speak Spanish, her relationship with social media, why she absolutely hates being put in a box, and how a 10-minute walk changed her life. So first of all, Ariana, I wanted to uh, let you know that I had seen you in A Bronx Tale, and I thought you were wonderful there. It was the first time that uh, I had seen you, and I said, man, you stand out. Um, what, what, what do you think it is about you that, that Broadway has noticed you? You know, I think uh, coming from the ensemble, um, you know, I had the good fortune to work frequently um, with ensemble work and being an understudy. I've, I learned very quickly that I, um, you know, had the ability to sing and I could, you know, hold my own in my scenes. I had good acting jobs. Um, so I think working consistently in those areas and like proving myself there was a very helpful factor. In my journey, mm-hmm. um, I also think, you know, apparently I've, I've been told by a few sources that I'm, I'm very charismatic and people really like to watch me. 
So, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, you know, honored by that. And I think that, you know, factor, the fact that people are always a little curious about what it is I'm doing on stage yeah. when it comes to, you know, show proper, I think helped me transition into booking more, more lead roles. Um, it's, cause I think when, when you can find someone who that when you, whew, excuse me, kind of early meet <laughs> <laughs> an actor or a dancer or a singer that is just interesting to you, um, then you can shape them. You can, you know, help them craft something that, that works for the, the story's purposes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably how that worked for me. Now for you, um, you're now in summer, the Donna summer musical, which, which I had a chance to see with my wife. And, uh, it was incredible to see the energy in the room. Everybody was standing, dancing. People just didn't care about what the person in the back, whether they could see or not, or whether they could hear it or not. They were just singing at the top of their lungs. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about summer, the, the Donna summer musical for, for the people who haven't seen it yet. And that are interested, maybe some tourists that are coming to New York and they have a sure. choice to see what it is. It's not just one person playing Donna Summer. There's three of them. Take me through the storyline of what people can expect when they see the musical. So as you say, there are three of us who, who portray Donna at different points in her life. You have Diva Donna, who introduces our show in a concert setting. She plays Donna in the, in the later parts of her life. She's the more mature Donna. More mature Donna, you know. Um, Donna that, that gives you, you know, the queen is back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, and then I, uh, portray disco Donna, who is sort of, um, you could say I portray Donna at the height of her powers. Right. I take you for, through love to, or I start you at love to love you, um, where she really becomes a star. I take you through the process of her getting to that point, like I take you through um, the beginnings of her fledgling career when she was in Germany, mm-hmm. um, just a production of the company or a production of hair. Um, and I, I then I take you all the way through um, her becoming becoming a star, going through a series of abusive boyfriends, her journey out of codependency. And I do so whilst um, delivering uh, hits like MacArthur Park and bad girls, and I love you, and heaven knows. I take you, and the, the, the more, the more mo- romantic of those songs um, is where we meet Bruce, mm-hmm. um, become her husband. Um, so I have the privilege, privilege of taking you through all of those, those beautiful moments in her life. I also dramatize some of the, the darker moments. Right. Um, for example, her having to take back her, her uh, career, Get, uh, and gaining the, the rights to her music again and the split from Casablanca Records and the transfer to David Geffen Records and then losing uh, her best friend and mentor, uh, Neil Bogart. Another element to the show that uh, was a bit interesting to me was mm-hmm. the, f- the, the, the lack of men in the show. A lot of women were cast as men and I thought that was really interesting. Tell us a little bit about for the audience that might have seen it already, like myself, and might have questions on how that played off. Um, our creative team, I, in my opinion, uh, made a bold choice by casting, you know, uh, women, uh, a predominantly female ensemble, and they do portray both 
women and men. Um, I think they want, they made that choice in an effort to capture the androgyny of the seventies. I think Donna, Donna and her music represented a time when androgyny was becoming a thing. They were both um, coming, um, coming up as hot topics at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, you know, a, a demographic of people who, who associate androgyny and Donna Summer's music with the same time period. Um, so I think in order to tap into that, that's why they made that choice. Within the context of our show, um, I think it plays towards female empowerment. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we're in the age of the Me Too movement and Time's Up. So I think it was a bold choice to stand in solidarity with all the things going on in our in our world right now. And it also, it's just so, in my opinion, looking at those women for a hundred minutes and seeing that, you know, they, their attention to detail and how they do portray these men and they're portraying powerful men. You know, Kaylee Cronin as Giorgio Moroder, mm-hmm. fantastic. You know, Kendall Hartsey as Pete Bellotti. Um, you, you, you're just watching them embody, you know, a gender that, that they've actually really had to go back and study. And there's also the, the commentary on equal pay. Yes. You know, <laughs> which I guess back in the seventies was something that wasn't pursued for change as much as it is today. And to know that things haven't really changed much since the seventies in terms of equal pay for women, but you are uh, somebody who is a major advocate and champion for LGBTQ and women's rights. Why are you so passionate about these two subjects? You know, I was raised by a single mom and my mom is a public educator. So she's my, my hero. Um, and I remember watching her, you know, as a young child, you know, struggle to, to make ends meet. You know, we lived in a, a small town in North Carolina, grew up in New Bern where I spent my formative mm-hmm. years until we moved to Raleigh, um, where she got a better job, where she did get more, get paid more. Um, and there were opportunities for her to advance, but that was tough, you know, and fortunate to have been surrounded by women who are strong and who fought for what was right, what they needed. Um, my mom had to fight for pay increases all mm. her life. And watching that as a young person, I think gave me the strength um, and just the overall um, realization that, oh, it's okay to ask for what you need. Um, I realized, you know, I've been very fortunate to, um, to grow up the way that I did and to, to feel safe enough to say, Hey, you know what, this is the work that I'm doing. And the amount that you are paying me is not equal to that. Or, Hey, you know, um, my gender or my, my sexual orientation has absolutely nothing to do with the job that I'm doing. And I think that's also something that makes me stand Mm out that, you know, I'm, I'm only 27 years old and you don't see a lot of that happening. No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Women might, I've definitely gotten my fair amount of pushback on that. In fact, I sat in a meeting with a producer once and he said, well, that's just not the way things are done. Ooh. When I, I looked at him and said, you know, the, the amount of work we're doing as an ensemble and, and as individuals is, is outrageous. And, and what we're being paid 
which at the time was what my industry deems minimum, it, it makes no sense when you look at the numbers and how much money this particular production was actually making in comparison to what we were being paid. And he said, well, that's just not the way things are done. And I looked at him and I said, well, just because something is doesn't mean it should be. Right. And that's where the change comes in. And uh, I'm glad that the show also addresses that. Um, How did the role come to you? And was it a pinch me moment for you? Oh, my goodness. Of course it was. It was such a pinch me moment. And I will tell you, I got this job on the weekend of the Tonys when I was still in Hamilton. Hamilton. Get out of here. Yeah, it was crazy. Hamilton was fortunate enough to be nominated for a record-breaking amount of Tonys, which was so, so cool. Um, it was a great season for for Broadway and for people of color that year. It was so awesome to be a part of that. But I was leaving my rehearsal from the Beacon Theater that day, and I was walking down 77, 72nd Street with Davi Diggs. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Like me and Davi just walking about. I think we had got a chirping chicken and got... <laughs> That's great. It was so, like, we're so simple. It was crazy. And I got the phone call telling me I'd gotten the job. And not only had I gotten this job, I had gotten a Bronx tale on the same day. So my life completely changed within 10 minutes of a walk down 72nd Street with David Diggs. What do you that, attribute that to? Hard work, really, really, really hard work and ugh, an undying belief in myself. I had made a distinct choice about six months prior to, th- to that that mm-hmm. after Hamilton, I was going to take a break and I was going to fight to get roles or to earn roles because I didn't just want to get them. I wanted to earn them that were more challenging for me because I had gotten to a point where while dance is my first love and it's the, my first language, I didn't really want it to continue to be my sole source of income because I was having a love-hate relationship with it at the time. Why? I dancers sometimes, you know, we can be deemed at the bottom of the totem pole, (laughs) you know, simple things like having to fight to get a new pair of shoes when my shoes are busted. Right. Um, That those types of fights or I won't call them fights, but arguments, Mm -hmm. they they were waning and becoming very draining for me because shoes are a simple topic. There's something I need to be good and successful at my job. And having to fight for a new pair of shoes seemed really unfair to me. Mm-hmm. And I just, I was like, you know what? I don't want to focus on that <laughs> right now. I, w- I want to try something new. If this is no longer serving me and hel- helping me as a human feel like I'm being challenged, then it's time to look for a new challenge. Right. So that's where um, that came from. Uh, just my, my will and my want to be challenged differently. Um, and, and that's when I had started auditioning for um, uh, more challenging work. How did you prepare for this one? Because, you know, I still have the echoes of my childhood listening to Donna Summer, you know, it's something that's almost subconscious in me. I mean, she's such a classic uh, performer, such a classic singer, you know, when Donna Summer is on the radio, uh, no pun intended. And, um, and then when I heard you sing, I was like, wow, she totally has the shades and layers and texture of her voice. How did you approach singing like Donna Summer? Because I know there's actors that don't even sound like the, the person that they're singing, but you you have her sound. Oh my gosh, thank you. That is the biggest compliment anyone could ever pay me. Thank you so 
much. How how did you prepare for this? Because did you have coaches? Was it a technical feat for you? Was this effortless? Was it easy? Um, you know, it, it was a lot of work and it was a process. It did involve coaches. I went and I trained with Joan later um, for a, a few months um, just to get some solid vocal technique. Joan later was, um, who, who, by the way, I just think is the best at what she does. Mm. Um, me such a, a scientific approach to to uh, being a vocalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a lot of um, retraining, retraining my muscle memory, learning how to breathe correctly. Because I, you know, as a dancer, I have to switch my brain and think as a vocalist. Um, and also, you know, Donna, nobody can beat that voice. Like she had such an understanding of how her instrument worked. So I, I had to then turn around and do the exact same and get to know my own voice before I could even begin to, to tap into her. Mm-hmm. Once I did get to that point, it became, okay, I made the choice to not impersonate her because I don't think that actually does a, her a service. I'm not, I'm not honoring her memory by trying to impersonate her sound. But what I can do is learn her vowel, her vowel placement mm-hmm. um, and how she she made sound, um, uh, and she made some very specific choices. Um, you know, her own nose are are placed very forward in a in a mm. mixy list. You would call that a mixy belt place. It's not a full belt. Um, but then, you know, something like "Spring was never waiting" is is very chesty. Um, you know, so it was all so, those nuances that you had to kind of pick up because yeah. they were subtle but not obvious. Exactly. And I, I watched countless, countless YouTube videos of her concerts. And I was very much interested in watching her in concert as opposed to listening to her albums. Her albums are, are stunning and flawless and they are a good, a good source uh, to study. But her concerts, her live you just got even more texture out of her and being able to watch her, watch her physicality and how she made sound. One of the most beautiful things she could have ever done was just stand and sing. What was the most challenging thing about this role and about the show so far that you've had to overcome and the reward, the enriching reward of having done that? The most challenging thing I had to overcome was my own um, singer's anxiety. Um, Where does that I, come from? Oh, the fact that I started out as a dancer, to be perfectly honest. So this transition has, are you, are you conflicted with it? No, I'm not conflicted anymore. Um, you know, I, I worked very hard to become a strong vocalist and this is the strongest I've ever sounded. You're a terrific vocalist. I thought you were a singer first, believe it or not. Thank you. I, you know, that was my goal was to be able to make people who did who who were aware of my work to hopefully make them forget that they've ever seen me dance before and that this and show them a completely new side of me. I wanted my singing to to stand on its own. I wanted my my scene work to stand on its own and then, you know, when I finally do get to show you the full extent of my my dance chops, then I wanted you to be reminded and and impressed by it because it is really hard to be a triple threat in this business. You know, I crafted this show, this show and this part after women like Debbie Allen and women like Donna McKechnie and Charlotte Dumboise. Wow. Yeah. uh, 
you know. So the other day when the Cheetah Rivera nominations came out and I was lucky to be included as, you know, outstanding dancer, female dancer in a Broadway show, I was so honored by that because of what Cheetah stood for. Right. Still Rita for. Moreno as well, yeah. Yes, you know what I mean? Like these strong, particularly Latina women because I'm I'm half Puerto Rican. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah, Puerto Rican and white. Um, the language wasn't spoken in my home when I was growing up, but you know, I, I take pride in knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of color that, you know, is now representing, uh, a true triple threats. You know, we don't just do one thing. We do a plethora of things and we do them at the same time, but isn't that what a woman is? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're known for multitasking. And I think it's really awesome to watch you know, someone like me be able to, to do that effectively, you know, in front of 1500 people and, and not, you know, completely have an anxiety attack. While she's- <laughs> um, <laughs> How do you identify when someone asks you where you're from? Um, I identify a few ways and tell them I'm a Southerner. <laughs> do you ever say you're Hispanic? Um, yeah, I do. I do. I acknowledge, as I did with you, I acknowledge that, you know, while I don't speak Spanish, um, fluently, I, I can understand it, um, to, to a point. Um, I do not actively seek work that is Spanish speaking. Um, and also when you look at me, that's not the first thing that you get. No, I, I, I would say that for me, you're ethnically ambiguous. And, and honestly, uh, as far as work purposes go, um, you know, I, I play towards ethnically ambiguous. I don't like being put in any sort of box ever. You hate that. I, I do. I hate it. I hate it with a burning, fiery passion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and I don't mind saying it because I like being able to challenge myself. If, if someone's looking at me and saying, oh, she's just a black girl. We're going to put her in the sassy black girl category. That limits me. And like, you know, to a point, someone might say, I've played an ingenue. I was the female ingenue in a Bronx tale. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want to be able to do lots of different types of roles. You know, you had asked me earlier about LGBTQ representation. And I just want to go back to that really quick because I like being able to play LGBTQ characters. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, as a human, as Ariana DeBose, I do not claim one label. Um, I, I, I like humans. I like what I like when I like it. <laughs> um, you know, but... But being able to represent people who who like people or people who I who 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 identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, asexual, non-binary, you know, pansexual, pansexual, like all of it. I think that that's good and powerful, and it is the way of the future as we are seeing. Um, I think that visibility is good. I never felt discriminated against growing up. Um, which I think was fortunate, given the fact that I'm from North Carolina. I am brown, um, and and you know my mother is is white. So so your you father's know, Puerto Rican. My father is Puerto Rican, um, and and you know he wasn't a part of my childhood. So that's you know essentially why I don't speak Spanish. It wasn't mm. spoken. I didn't have that influence um, as a as a child. So. You know, I'm I'm fortunate to have had a, a a wonderful mother and a very supportive family who just let me be. And as a dancer, I think it's through dance that I discovered that I am attracted to lots of different things. Um, and I 
that's why I champion young people who are just like, I'm, I'm experimenting, I'm exploring, because I don't think we should tell any young person that anything they feel is wrong. I think we need to give them, you know, platforms and opportunities to, to explore and talk about it. So, because I think when we get to a place where we're telling a young person that the things they feel are incorrect, that's where we steer them off their path. Yes, I totally agree with you. Totally agree so, with you. You know, that's what I'm fighting for. I want them to feel, you know, I want them to feel accepted and, and heard. And, and that's why I use my social media platforms the way that I do. Yeah, I was going to ask I, you about that. What is your relationship with social media? How do you use it uh, for, is it promotion? Is it uh, sort of advocating your causes? You know, it's a combination of the things. I use it for all of it. It's ultimately, it's a positive vibes only zone. Nice. So bring your nev- negativity on my social pages, you will be blocked. And it's not <laughs> that I don't feel that your opinion is valid or whatnot. You're entitled. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. That's not what my social platforms are for. You know, I'm, I am here for healthy debate, but respectful healthy debate, you know. Um, but I use, like currently, I've been doing National Poetry Month on my Instagram. So I've been giving you, you know, poetry quotes from Cleo Wade. I've been sharing my I read favorite. that. I love, like, I, I, I love being able to use it in that way. You know, poetry for me, um, specifically in my high school years, was kind of a, a savior. Sp- specifically um, Emerson, Emerson's work. I was able to find a lot of truth and meaning and, you know, just sources of inspiration and work. Um, so that's what, what I decided to share this month in conjunction with sharing, you know, news about the show or tidbits of opening night. I think right now in particular with who I am and what I represent, what I fight for, it is kind of cool to see a woman of color, you know, who set a goal for herself actually achieve that goal because it just proves it can be done. Listen, I, I think it's a great thing to see a woman of color on Broadway, period, and yes. to be so successful simply because even though you're a great representation, the show is a great representation of that, the numbers are still very low. And so I think we still yeah. have a lot more to go, and I think that's changing. And before I let you go, because I know you're very busy and uh, you're working so much, uh, I wanted to do a quick speed round of questions just to kind of get to know you a little bit better about your personal life. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Last TV show you binged? Altered Carbon. Oh, nice. That's a good yeah. one. Okay. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> App you can't live without? Instagram. I'm obsessed. I love pictures. I really do. <laughs> Funniest person you've ever met? Martha Plimpton. A movie that changed your life? Steel Magnolias. An album you'd recommend to everyone? I mean, Donna Summer's Greatest Hits. And quickly, a story, a quick story about your first big break. You know what? My first big break in my mind was my uh, New York City debut, um, which was Company on Screen starring Neil Patrick Harris and Patti LuPone. Wow. Two titans right off the bat. Literally. I And that whole cast was, you know, star-studded. Christina Hendricks, Martha Plimpton. Holy Anika cow. Poe. It was an incredible, incredible cast. And I, I booked that job and I was just dancing in the ensemble, quote, quote unquote. I booked that job off of an open call. And I'd seen the posting on playbill.com and I said, you know what? I'm going to go to this because the choreographer is doing a show in my hometown. And even if I don't get this, maybe he'll hire me for hairspray. It was a production <laughs> of hairspray in North Carolina. And I ended up getting both jobs. Wow. So, 
that was my big break was doing that show. company <laughs> <laughs> on screen at the with the New York Philharmonic at Lincoln Center with Patti Lapone. That was my New York City debut. I Incredible. That, I mean, talk about a big break, right? That 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 is a story that that has to be like tattooed <laughs> on your forearm or something. It's what a great story. <laughs> well, Ariana, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Congratulations on all your success and congratulations on your nominations. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about you now. Uh, the name of the show is called Summer, the Donna Summer Musical. And you are fantastic in it. The light shines on you tremendously. Uh, it was great to see it. My wife was standing, singing. It was like we went back to the 70s and she was back at Studio 54 watching the a live performance of Donna Summer. That's how it felt like for all of us. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you, Ariana. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey guys, for the last couple of weeks on this podcast, I've been telling you about a new brand of underwear I recently discovered called Saks, S-A-X-X. And as you know, quality is important in all aspects of our lives, including our underwear. We deserve underwear that feels good, provides support, doesn't chafe or ride up, and we don't have to throw out every couple of months. You know how that's like. That is what Saks underwear is all about. Saks has taken something we all need and has made it better. It's the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. Think about it. A great pair of underwear should have a comfortable fabric, should be breathable with moisture wicking, and come with a great supportive design. Saks has all that. What I most like about it is the ballpark pouch, which feels like the most comfortable hammock in the world. It lets you move around freely in total support with no friction. My favorite designs are the Vibe Boxer Briefs. I've said this to you before. They're really comfortable, nice, and cool, and I actually have them on right now. They feel great. So because you should know what a great pair of underwear feels like, I've arranged to give you a limited-time deal just for you. $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase with my promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT. Order a few pairs of sacks now with my promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT and know what a great underwear feels like. That's Saks Underwear at saxxunderwear.com and use the promo code highly relevant. That's Saks with two X's. And remember, saxunderwear.com, promo code highly relevant. It's time again for another recap of the week's top stories in movies, TV, music, and digital and social media in a segment I like to call Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. 16-year-old Isabella Moner has been tapped to play Dora the Explorer for Paramount's live-action feature. Dominican actress Zoe Saldana gets a Hollywood Walk of Fame star. Guillermo del Toro will direct scary stories to tell in the dark. Penelope Cruz and Lupita Nyong'o are set to star in the female-driven spy thriller 355. Oscar-winning film Coco is going to Netflix May 29th and has already accrued $800 million worldwide. And Ben Kingsley will play Spanish painter Salvador Dali in a 
forthcoming movie. In TV news, Rita Moreno will be honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Gracie Awards. Fox has renewed Empire for a fifth season. The 2018 MTV Awards will air on Monday, June 18th at 9 p.m. with host Tiffany Haddish. And Conan O'Brien's TBS Late Night Show will move to a half-hour format in 2019. Switching over to music, Christina Aguilera has dropped the first Kanye West-produced single, Accelerate, from her new album titled Liberation, her first in five years. Pink announced the 37-city North American tour titled Beautiful Trauma World Tour, which will kick off March 1st, 2019 in Fort Lauderdale. In Broadway news, four Latin exes are up for Tony Awards. John Leguizamo, Ariana DeBose, Lindsay Mendez, and Chita Rivera. And Moulin Rouge, the musical, is coming to Broadway. And in digital and social media news, Twitter got an internal bug and is asking everyone to change their passwords. Facebook launches Oculus Go Virtual Reality mobile headsets. Spotify now has 75 million subscribers. Pirate radio stations are exploding on YouTube. ESPN is rebooting SportsCenter for the mobile era. And MoviePass has a new rival named Cinemia, which boasts that it has an annual subscription plan for as low as $4.99 per month for one ticket per month. From waitress to television director, Puerto Rican and Emmy nominee Zetna Fuentes has amassed an incredible and envious resume and career. As one of the few Latina directors on TV, Fuentes illustrates how a Latina in 2018 can become a power player in the television business. She takes me through how a chance meeting with The Sopranos' Michael Imperioli changed her destiny and the best way how Latinas can become directors in the television landscape today. First of all, Zetna, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very cool. I'm so glad to have you on because I rarely get a chance to interview female directors. And uh, I think especially Latina film directors, it's they're like they're like unicorns. Like you don't <laughs> really see them, you know, uh, and sometimes you think they're a part of your imagination. But here you are living proof of that. Um, uh, thank you. We exist. We exist. Yes. We're growing in numbers. <laughs> you're, you're promoting, uh, the new Amazon drama series, Bosch, uh, that, yeah. uh, premiered April 13th for season four. Big deal. Uh, Bosch is already four seasons in, but you've also worked on amazing shows that everyone knows at some point they've seen you, they, you've directed Scandal, how to get away with murder. This is us, which is my wife's favorite program. <laughs> Ray Donovan, Yay. Grey's Anatomy. I mean, and you're Latina and I cannot believe that I'm just hearing about you now. So tell me a little bit about how you became a director. I'm from the Bronx and what I'm doing right now is the farthest thing I could have ever imagined doing. Uh, you know, it, yeah, it, it's, it's like I'm an astronaut. I never thought Really, that I could do, you know, I didn't even think this was a job. I didn't even know this was a job. You know, like, who thinks about, from where I'm from, who thinks about anything like this? You know, it, it, um, yeah, it, I think it just came about really because at some point I realized that I loved stories and I loved telling stories. I, I sort of knew I wasn't a writer and knew I didn't want to pursue that and thought I wanted to get involved in mm -hmm. some way at some point in in some sort of visual storytelling, you know, I loved TV as a kid. I watched everything. Uh, I loved movies and, and I thought, let me just try and get a job. You know, I interned, I PA'd, I, I did everything to try and learn about all the different aspects of, of the work. 
And then at some point I thought I really wanted to learn to work with actors. It was really fascinating to me. I knew they were sort of that pivotal piece of the puzzle. They were the ones who you entrusted with the words to bring things to life. And I got a job. It was, it was not a paying job. Job job is a big word for what it was. I got I I managed to like <laughs> you know find a way in to work at a theater um, with a director who I really admired, um, Kevin Kittle. And when you say the theater, you're talking about uh, the theatrical stage. Yeah, yeah, live theater in New York. Um, and Kevin Kittle, you know, he uh, is at Mason Gross at Rutgers University, and he was directing a play in New York, and he let me be his assistant director, and it was mind blowing to me and opened my eyes, and I sort of fell in love with theater and, and the work and started to work in theater in New York and off-Broadway theater and had the great fortune at some point of meeting Michael Imperioli. Oh, wow. From the uh, Sopranos. Yeah. Yeah. It was during the days of the Sopranos and he was starting a theater company. And I remember uh, that. Incredible, yeah. Called Studio Dante in Chelsea. I worked there. During How did you two guys meet? Existence. Oh my God. So I was a waitress at the Ear Inn in New York. I don't know Get if you know here. it. Of, of uh, course I know. Yep. It's the one on Greenwich Avenue. Yeah. That's right. Right on spring. Right on spring off of Greenwich. And I was a waitress there. And Michael and some of the guys from The Sopranos would come in. Um, they were really cool. It already and sounds like a movie. Friend. It already sounds like a movie. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> and Nick Sandow, I know I'm throwing out a lot of names, but they're all people that sort of helped me. Nick Sandow is a really great friend, tremendous actor and director. Um, he's on Orange is the New Black. He was going to be directing his first play and he and Michael knew each other and Nick asked me if I would be his assistant director and I jumped at it. Wait, let me get this straight. So you were, you were waitressing. Michael yep. walks in. You didn't know him. And yeah. And, and wait a minute. So so his friend was the one that you knew? Yeah. So I knew. I didn't know Michael. You know, I know Nick Sandow was a good, a, a friend, you know, he was a regular, oh, and literally okay. everything that's happened in my life is through the earring. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, like six degrees of the earring for me. Oh, wow. So, so earring, the earring is basically Al, Alice, Alice in Wonderland. It's the rabbit hole. Yes, it totally is. So there are all these great, you know, people that come in the regulars and Nick Sandow was a regular. He was friends with my now husband who was a bartender. And Nick knew I was working in theater and he was about to direct this play at Michael's company. And I went and became Nick's assistant director. And that's how I got to know Michael. And then I stayed on at the theater and worked on every production that, that they put up. And it was an amazing learning experience. Again, he's really generous. Everyone there, his wife, Victoria, just everybody there was, it was this great time to sort of experiment with no judgment and put on this great work. And so I did theater and fell in love with that and then met another theater director who um, was directing on Guiding Light. And he became like an integral part of my life, a really important mentor to me, Brian Murtis. He's a brilliant director and he got me in the door at Guiding Light. And then I started shadowing there and I got a chance to direct a few scenes and it went really well. And you were nominated for a few Emmys with the directing team. Yeah, for One Life to Live. So after Guiding Light, I went to One Life to Live and I worked at One Life to Live again. Uh, you know, I sort of loved the work. It was just bad timing on my part. It was the end of New York City soap operas. Yeah. Uh, they all started to get canceled and I was trying to figure out sort of what was next for me. And I applied uh, to ABC's directing program and I got in, which was amazing. And I started to go back and forth between New York and Los Angeles and shadow, you know, nighttime episodic shows. 
And Pretty Little Liars was my very first one-hour job that I booked, that I directed in episodic. That's incredible. And so what was the skill set that set you apart from most directors that allowed you to, to fit the criteria of what a professional director is? You know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like uh, there's so many parts of the job that are, you know, really important and vital, like, like obviously many other, you know, careers and crafts and professions. I think for directing, I love it. You know, when I think about how fortunate I am to be doing what I love, I know that's, you know, uh, not always the case. And so for me, I, I just love the work. I love storytelling. I love reading a script for the first time and seeing the movie in my head unfold. Yeah. You know, I love working with the actors. I love collaborating with the cinematographers and the editors. And, you know, I love everything about the process. And I, I hope that shows in the work. I take it very seriously. I want to do a great job. I want to, you know, um, tell the best version of the story that I can. And I work really hard. I, you know, I, I prepare. I do all my homework. For example, you know, if I'm going in to do you know, you mentioned scandal. You know, I had I'd seen every single scandal episode up oh until God, the scandal so that I was going to direct. That was that must I was a fan. Pinch me, moment, yeah. I was a right? fan, so it helped. Yeah. Oh my God, I was a fan, so it was it was an easier one. You know, there are somewhere I haven't seen any, and then I have to really cram it all in. But scandal, I'd loved from you know from the get go, and that was a complete pinch me moment when I was working with all of them and Kerry Washington on a Shonda show. It was like. Oh my God. You, did you get hired by Shonda? Was Shonda the one that approves who directs her episodes? You know, uh, she's uh, very involved in, in obviously so much of everything that goes on. Uh, the approval process can be, you know, a, a couple of layers when you're trying to get the work in episodic. So you have the studio that has to approve you. You have the network, in this case, you know, ABC that has to approve you. And then obviously you have the, the person or people at the show that have to okay and say that yes, they want you to direct an episode. So it's it's not it's it's hard. It's hard. It's not to get easy. Yeah, it sounds to, to me like yes. it's not, not easy, easy to get in into this club, uh, especially for a female director. And so, how many female directors do you know of within your industry? Are 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 the numbers really low, like like the stats say, or are the stats exaggerating? And there's many female directors in Hollywood. You know, what's, what's interesting about that is I see it both ways. The stats are not lying. The statistics are not lying. You know, the numbers are dismal, uh, but I'm very optimistic because what I'm seeing now in the last few years is, and especially the, I would say this last year, is, you know, in particular, is that there are, there are many qualified women and directors of color and, and, and the us, the women of color that are directors, where we pick both boxes um, that are getting their their fine you know their due their their opportunity that they deserve because they've been working and they're and they're ready for the door to open. So we do exist. I know you know when I go in and people say to me, oh, I don't you know, I tried to get so and so to direct and they couldn't, and I don't know you know there there are not there aren't that many of you. And I say, well, I, I know a, I know a lot. Can I give you these names? Can I tell you you know? My friends were really good and talented and maybe they haven't done right now as many episodes as that person has done, but they've done one or two or they've done this great feature film and all they need is a break. Like everyone else gets a break, you know? So there are, you know, I would say uh, uh, many because I want to, you know, 
encourage everyone to be open and know that you just have to look a little harder, look a little deeper right. to find us. But there's a, a qualified women and directors of color, you know, who are ready and capable to do the work. And I think the doors are opening more now. Why don't you rattle off several names? That way we, we know oh. of them. And you can, yes, and, my and, pleasure. And we can, we can be conscious of who they are. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. I love that question. Okay. Um, I'll just, I hope I don't forget anyone, but, uh, there's Millicent Shelton. I mean, these are, I'm talking about badass women direct, like women directors, some of color, some not, but Millicent Shelton, Rosemary Rodriguez, Hanalee Culpepper, Steph Green, uh, uh, Laura Belzey, Laura Shapiro, Wendy Stanzler, you know of, of some of these people. Leslie Linka-Gladder, who's amazing, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of my mentors. Bethany Rooney, uh, Betty Thomas, Mimi Leader. I mean, these are some of these are icons, so these some of these names you might know. Uh, Regina King, who's doing her first of pilot, course. obviously we know as an actor, amazing director. Uh, Sally Richardson, Silver Tree, Paula Hunziger. I mean, I, I could literally yeah, go, you could go, literally go on, go, and on. go on and on. You know, there, yeah. there was an article that I read uh, about you on Refinery29 where you said, quote, it takes a lot of support to get someone to say yes in this industry. And I kind of wanted to give us some context on what you meant by that. It's one of those things where, especially when you're trying to get your first job or your second job or someone to just, you know, again, open that door for you, it's. It's very difficult. You know, there's a lot at stake. The budgets are really high for an episodic uh, show. So it's easier for people to go with who they know, right? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for, for a show or a network or a studio, all of them, to say yes and give the reins to a person that has never worked at the studio, has never done the show, that they don't know. So when I say it takes a lot of support to get the yes, it requires people to champion that that sort of, you know, quote, unknown person. It requires someone to go out on a limb and say, I'm, I know this is worth the risk. And it's not going to be just one person. Again, it's going to be someone at the studio, someone at the network. It's going to be the showrunner or maybe a writer on staff who knows the director or maybe, you know, another director friend who's worked there who can say, look, this person is really qualified. You got it. You, you got to take a chance. It requires a lot of people to push it, to push it up the hill. You know, there's a lot of young women, Latina women uh, that are listening to the podcast right now. And they're going, oh man, if Zetna can do it, I can do it. But it's not that easy. What were some of the challenges that you had to confront as a Latina uh, woman wanting to become a director in this business. What are the some What are some of the obstacles that they're going to have to kind of overcome as well as they're headed down that path that you're in right now? It's so exciting to just think of of Latinas listening to this and wanting to pursue this career. Um, that in itself is just mind blowing. I'm like, yes. First of all, I say <laughs> pursue it to no end. You know, I, I'm a big believer in really going for it. And not taking the no, you know, and, and, and not accepting it. And if someone says no, then finding a way around that and finding another opportunity. Uh, there, I think one of the big obstacles is that we don't have, you know, a lot of us don't have the access. We haven't, we're not coming from, uh, we don't have a connection in the business. Maybe we don't have the, the, the role model or the mentor that, that we know to ask questions, you know, we don't, 
we're we're starting a little bit behind the eight ball because we haven't we have we're not we're not in the world as in that world as much, right? Right. So you have to do everything you can to meet people and 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 make the relationships and 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 watch the shows and do all your homework and learn about the craft so that you can be not a great Latina filmmaker or director, just a great director, full stop, you know? And I think, uh, whatever perceptions that might, that the business or the community might have, because they haven't seen many of us doing the work because we're women or, and, and because we're Latinas, you can't let that stop you. You can't let that affect you. You have to just go and be better, be faster, be more talented, be the better storyteller so that it doesn't become, about anything other than your talent. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Bosch and sort of the work that you've done there. What are some of the episodes that, that we can see your imprint on? So I actually did uh, just one episode. Last year was my very first time working at Bosch, and it was an amazing experience. If you're watching this season, the current season that's streaming now, then you'll be able to catch my episode. It's it's part of the, the season. Uh, and it was great. It was a really great experience. It shoots here in Los Angeles. Um, the show looks amazing. It really captures LA. It, you know, LA is a character in the show. And I love that because I, I love, you know, shooting on location. I love featuring the place where I am working. Right. Um, I love working with that cast. The cast is, talk about a pinch me moment. I was a huge fan of many of the actors there. Titus is amazing. Jamie, you know, Titus Wallover, Jamie Hector, Lance Reddick. These are people that they were, I admired their work for so long. Amy Aquino, my God, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, it was like, I got to work with her. So it was really um, a, a great experience. Uh, this year's storyline is really exciting. And um, I like, I like sort of working in that genre as well. It's noir, it's a little darker. Um, it was a really great experience. As, as, as a Hispanic, do you ever feel the need to kind of bring your culture into everything you do? Uh, which is, I guess, in, as a director and a person in a position of power uh, and influence, you have a voice to hire more Latino actors or Latinx actors, to hire more Hispanic writers, uh, just simply because of the stats, or maybe create some sort of storylines that tend to be Hispanic. Like uh, Breaking Bad, I remember when I was watching Breaking Bad, there was like this whole like season that was spoken with a lot of Spanish. So, mm-hmm. yep. you know, we, we're, we're kind of seeing like the mainstream acceptance of foreign languages in English language shows. So as a director, do you do you do you have a say in how the show looks like the type of actors that are hired, the type of plots and storylines that you follow? How much of of that are you involved in? And, and, and do you feel that uh, or. Or have you tried to inject some sort of Hispanic flavor into the work that you do? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, the first part of that is how much sort of uh, say we have or how much juice do we have in, in terms of the look or the hiring of actors. It really depends on the project. Um, a lot of times in episodic, which is most of the work I've been doing now, we go in, for example, on Bosch, and I do one episode of, a, of an established series uh, that already has been on, you know, has been streaming for several seasons. And so then what, what happens is that you are hired to take that one episode and, and do the best job you can with that one episode, elevate the script, bring your passion, your ideas to that 
script within the context of the show, right? Mm-hmm. I can't now go in and direct a Bosch that looks wildly different or scandal, you know, when that show has been on the air for four or five years. Yeah, you can't take it, Carrie Washington out right. and ha- have her take a bench while you put in a Latina actress. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's unrealistic, right? Exactly. Right. But what we can do is, in terms of the story that we're presented, the episode that we have, I always, I mean, just by virtue of, of who I am, which is why it's vital that the industry opens their doors and allows different voices to be heard and tell different kinds of stories because we each bring our own point of view. I'm a Latina from the Bronx. Everything that I do is going to be seen through that lens. I don't have to scream it from the rooftops, but how I approach the material is going to be different. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm me. I'm not going to approach it the way any other director is going to approach it. So a lot of times it happens, right? Where I'll think of the character and I'll think of that character, maybe on the page, it doesn't say Latina or Latino, but I'm like, that person it should be like, that's how I, that's it. the movie in my head is that person's Latino. That's those are the people I know. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's great because you can have influence. You can do those sorts of things when you're directing. And I do that all the time. So what ultimately, what kind of advice would you give the young director, male or female that doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the contact, doesn't have the networking skills uh, yet desires to be a top filmmaker and direct a lot of the episodes that you've been a part of for so long. And, and to know that you're from the Bronx, you're homegrown from New York. What, what, what is some of the advice that you can give them to kind of inspire them to say, you know what? It's, it's not, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. I love the the specificity of the New York question, because I think Look, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm in Los Angeles, right? Which is, you know, Hollywood and there's so much production and there's so much work here, which is still not accessible to many, most people, right? But when I think about New York, I think what's exciting about New York right now is there actually is a lot more production in New York right now. And I think if there's anyone out there who is interested in directing or learning about different jobs in, in television, in episodic, it's an opportunity in New York to kind of seek it out. It's never easy because you don't have, if you don't have the contact, you don't know where to go. I would say the first thing I would contact the mayor's office of film, they will be very helpful in telling you what productions are in town and what shooting. And then I would just cold call, you know, I used to do that too. I would reach out to production companies and be prepared, you know, have your resume, have, have your experience. And if, and if it's nothing that's TV or film related, get in however you can get in. Offer to intern. Offer to be a production assistant. A volunteer, yeah. Get in, get volunteer, get in so that you can learn and you can be on set. And that's how you start to meet people. I mean, the number of people that I met when I PA'd or when I worked at, you know, an office that I still am in touch with now, you know, it, it, it happens. You make relationships and it might not pan out then and there. It might take a year or two but you start to build a network of people that know you, that are going to believe in you and that might lend you a hand when you need it. Then the other thing I say is if you really know you want to direct, direct, hmm. direct anything you can make a short film, do it on Doing, your iPhone. I was just going to say the Steven Soderbergh, uh, sort yep. of way of, of shooting oh. film today. Yeah. Just shoot, you know, shoot, shoot. You're going to, you're going to practice. You're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make something amazing. Who knows? But you just got to keep doing it. It's 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 and you have to keep working at the craft. And so 
you know, get friends together in your living room and, and, and direct a scene. You know, you don't even have to shoot it. If you want to just learn how to work with actors, get a couple of people together and and start to just start to do anything that that helps you to tell stories. Absolutely. And, and since we're living in the era of YouTube, you know, you can literally just post that puppy up and use that as some sort of demo reel to introduce. <laughs> Absolutely. To well, Zetna, thank you so much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. We appreciate your time, your insight. Uh, and these great stories and, and, and advice that you have for, for everyone in listening right now. I know that, look, one, one, of the, one of the main mission statements of this podcast in particular is to inspire and celebrate uh, U.S. Hispanics, you know, that, that we're not represented as much yet. It's not because we're bereft of talent. It's just sometimes we just don't know how to get somewhere, you know, from point A to point B. And sometimes we just need to hear it, be inspired by it, and then sort of move forward. And, you know, you're, you're now a, a great source of that for so many people. So once again, thank you for being such a great role model, Zetna. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Every week I share some new tracks I've discovered, and here are three you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Accelerate, Christina Aguilera. Positivo, J Balvin. Simples Corazones, Fonseca. That's it for episode 75 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Ariana DeBose and Zetna Fuentes for hanging out with me today. And I hope you guys dug these conversation as well. If you like this podcast, please share, retweet, and recommend our show on all your social media platforms. Remember, it's through your word of mouth that our show can grow. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.